Hello and welcome to edition number 1886 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 21st of October. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Eric Imerson and our two readers tonight are Nigel James and Barbara Barringer. This week we have items from the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Mail. Our first two stories concern local fires, and the first is read to us by Barbara. Hello. Three new homes for site of fire-ravaged village pub. Hope of resurrecting a village pub in Standlake appears to have vanished after planning permission was granted for three new homes on the site. The Bell Inn, High Street Standlake, has been out of use since it was gutted by fire in September 2015. Plans brought forward by Few Inns Limited seek to turn it into a four-bedroom house with a further two five-bedroomed houses on land previously used as the pub's car park. Stanlake Parish Council welcomed the conversion of the pub but objected to the extra homes, arguing it would represent overdevelopment of the site before citing ongoing surface drainage and sewage capacity problems in the area. However, the biggest bone of contention considered by West Oxfordshire District Council's Lowlands Area Planning Subcommittee was the loss of the pub with Dan Levy, Lib Dem, Ensham and Cassington even persuading one of his colleagues to withdraw a proposal to pass the plans. Mr Levy said he did not believe there was any evidence of an attempt to make the pub viable or a valid marketing attempt to save it in line with planning policy. Stanlake is a large spread out village, he said. There is a great deal of distance between the Black Horse, the thriving pub, and this one, and for large parts of the village, it would be substantially closer to get to the bell. I'm sure it is not our policy to have only one pub per village. The history of this place is that it burnt down, it was never unviable, and I would much rather we stuck to our local plan policy and insisted upon work to make pubs viable. My other objection is the conversion of the car park into housing. The car park went into a large open space, and most of the time there would not be anything in it. Um... The height of a car is very different to a set of properties in what is essentially green space. Ben Woodruff, Conservative, Ducklington, said, The fact the pub has been empty since 2015 demonstrates that there has been no interest in reopening the establishment or it is not viable. It is not the planning committee's job to determine how many pubs a village has, we deal with what comes into us. Mr Levy responded by saying, It is precisely the purpose of this committee, among other things, to determine changes of use in line with the local plan, leading Duncan Enright, Whitney East, to withdraw his proposal in light of that exchange. Jeff Hain, Conservative Milton under Witchwood, stepped forward to propose and the decision to approve the plans subject to council officers being happy with ecology reports, was passed by seven of 11 committee members present. The other four councillors 
voted against it. And there's a nice picture of a pub contest at the heart of the village with 200 spectators in 1987. And the second item, about an arson attack near the home of former Whitney MP David Cameron, is read to us by Nigel. The heading is Obsessed Arsonist Torched House Next to Former PM. An arsonist travelled to David Cameron's West Oxfordshire village and petrol-bombed a neighbouring farmhouse in a warning to the former Prime Minister. Schizophrenic Joseph Stead, 35, who had printed out pictures of the politician's home, targeted the wrong house, instead torching an £800,000 farmhouse on March the 9th last year. The owner, an 82-year-old woman, said she'd felt murderous when she was told the house had been destroyed. She was staying at her son's house at the time. Stopped by the woman's son and grandson, Rambling Stead made bizarre homophobic comments about Mr Cameron. Inside his pockets were found pictures of the ex-Prime Minister's home, while police later found searches for Mr Cameron on his computer. Sentencing the arsonist to a Section 41 hospital order with restrictions, Judge Nigel Daly said, I consider there's a real risk that if he is released from hospital, he is not and not under day-to-day care of persons who can make sure his medicine is appropriate, that there would be a risk to the public of serious harm from him. Prosecutor Jonathan Stone told Oxford Crown Court yesterday that Stead had travelled from his home in Wellingborough, Northamptonshire, to the village of Dean near Chipping Norton. Checks on his computer showed Stead had searched the net for the village where former Conservative leader David Cameron lived. He had printed pictures of the politician's home. At around 10pm, he was seen near Hill House, Dean, swigging from bottles of alcohol. At 10.30, he called the fire brigade, telling the call handler about the fire in the village. A neighbour also called 999. A fire report found that the blaze that gutted the house was started by a Molotov cocktail, or petrol bomb, thrown through a downstairs window. The remains of a bottle of spirits and petrol-soaked rag were discovered at the house. Neighbours and members of the farmhouse's owner's family tried to put out the fire but were ushered away by firefighters. In a victim personal statement, the owner, a widowed farmer's wife, who'd lived in the property since the 1960s, said the news had been broken by her daughter shortly after midnight. Summing up her feelings when she heard the fire, she said... Murderous, furious and shocked that anyone, regardless of their feelings, could do such a thing. The house had been valued at £800,000 before the fire, with the plot now only worth around half that. She had lost personal mementos of her late husband in the blaze, as well as family photographs, her books and a collection of uh, crocheted squares she'd hoped to make into blankets for her great-grandchildren. Stead was arrested at the scene. He was making bizarre racist and homophobic comments about David Cameron. He told the farmer's grandson that he'd bought a bottle of vodka from one of the David Cameron's, racial insults deleted, corner shops. The fire starter later told psychiatrists that he had gone to Dean after reading the articles online. The fire was meant as a threat to Mr Cameron, but he did not intend to cause him harm. 
Stead, formerly of Cooper Road, Wellingborough, pleaded guilty to arson, being reckless as to whether life was endangered. He had no previous convictions. Mitigating, Graham Blower said his client had been receiving treatment for paranoid schizophrenia at a psychiatric unit since his arrest and had grabbed his treatment with both hands and was responding well. He had shown an insight into his behaviour. The heading of this article is Arson Attack Brings Home the Risks That Come with the Job. As Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hall has said, it has been a dark time for politics. Sir David Amos, MP, was stabbed to death while holding a constituency surgery at a church in Leon C. On the same day, an arsonist appeared at Oxford Crown Court who travelled to Dean, Cameron's West Oxfordshire village of Dean, and set fire to a neighbouring farmhouse in a warning to the former Prime Minister. He has been detained under the Mental Health Act. Mr Cameron, as a former Prime Minister, has lifelong personal protection from the Specialist Protection Branch of the Metropolitan Police Service Protection Command. But what about the safety of the increasing number of councillors and candidates who are being subjected to abuse, threats and public intimidation? One local councillor has spoken of another sitting councillor who has tweeted his wish for violence against Tory MPs. Did a U-turn, apologised and kept his position. Charles McDowell, chairman of Whitney and West Oxfordshire Conservatives, said there seems to be an ever-growing connection between terrible acts such as this and mental health, but that doesn't make them any more acceptable. This act could easily have resulted in a tragedy. Meanwhile, Whitney MP Robert Courts has admitted that there are risks that come with the job, but insisted that his friend David Amos would have wanted him to continue to hold face-to-face surgeries. Social media has certainly provided a new and largely anonymous route for people to abuse and threaten. But in the end of this short, but in the end, this sort of intimidation will only put people off standing as local councillors, and we need lots of diverse candidates to ensure that decision making is well informed. There is no salary for being a councillor. There is an allowance to reimburse you for time and expenses, but it involves a huge variety of work, some of which is pretty challenging. Debate and having different views is all part of a healthy democracy. Abuse and threats will undermine democracy by creating fear amongst those who are still willing to represent it. Our next item is headed Tourism Industry in Call for Recovery Aid. The tourism industry in Oxfordshire, which contributed £2.5 billion to the economy pre-pandemic, is not expected to bounce back until late 2023, according to the body responsible for attracting visitors to the county. Hayley Beer-Gamage, CEO of Experience Oxfordshire, called for urgent investigation in tourism following fears over the pace of the economy recovery following the corona lockdowns and restrictions. Her demands follow a meeting between MPs and representatives of the county's tourism sector. Whitney MP Robert Quartz 
and Oxford East MP Annalise Dodds met business and representatives of Bicester Village, Blenheim Palace and the Oxford Bus Company to discuss the government's tourism recovery plan. Pre-pandemic, Oxfordshire welcomed 30 million visitors a year, contributing £2.5 billion and 42,000 jobs. It's thought that numbers and spending in 2020 have halved. Of the tourism recovery plan, Miss Beer Gamage said, it's a fantastic and ambitious plan, but it needs significant financial support and funding for it to be implemented and provide that long-term recovery support. We bolster the private sector's support and are working hard with our partners to ensure growth in the visitor economy. But it's not without its challenges. With inbound tourism not looking likely to fully recover to pre-pandemic levels until late 2023, and with added competition not only across the UK but across uh, European neighbours, as well as long-haul markets, we need to ensure that all of the hard work which has been implemented to nurture these markets, such as China and the US, doesn't go to waste. We need to be planning now for their return rather than in the future. One of the biggest problems faced by the hospitality industry, she said, was lack of staff. Hotels were operating at a reduced capacity and some restaurants had been forced to close due to a lack of staff. She said hospitality was still seen as low-skilled and low-paid work and things need to change. She said withdrawal of tax-free sales meant the UK did not represent the same value for money it once did. And a lack of Chinese tourists, the second biggest spending group with pre-pandemic sales of £1.7 billion, was having a big impact on the visitor economy. MP Mr Court said... The lack of workforce is a problem across the country, and in part this is due to the economic dislocation from the pandemic. And now two short news items. Uninsured cars seized. A motorist has been caught driving a car without insurance in Whitney. Police spotted the vehicle and also realised it was registered as off-road. It was seized and the driver reported to court. Drivers must have motor insurance for a vehicle if they use it on roads and in public places, but they do not need to insure the vehicle if it is kept off the road and declared as such. Anyone who drives an uninsured car could face a fixed penalty of £100, have their vehicle wheel-clamped, impounded or destroyed or face a court prosecution with a possible maximum fine of £1,000. And the second item is a ridiculous 999 call for putrid chicken. A man called 999 to complain about putrid chicken he bought from Tesco. Thames Valley Police shared a recording of the ridiculous 999 call in a bid to encourage others to think before they call for the emergency services. The force is reminding people not to use the number unnecessarily. In the two-minute call, the man said, This is an odd thing to put to you, but I bought a chicken yesterday from Tesco. I put it straight in the fridge without opening the bag. I opened it and the smell from it is absolutely disgusting. It's putrid. 
He later asked, I don't know what to do with it. Can you advise me? The call handler said, there's nothing I can advise you with other than throwing it away or taking it back to Tesco. The man also asked the police whether they could collect the chicken from him. (laughs) The headline for our next item is huge support after friends crash death. A village pulled together for an outstanding outpouring of support after a 26-year-old neighbour died following a car crash. Dan Johnson was hurt in an accident in early September and was in a coma at the John Radcliffe Hospital before dying last week. Following the crash, a Facebook page was created to offer updates on his condition, which soon turned into a place to post fond memories and words of support for Dan's family to read to him in hospital. The private group had about 300 members, and within days, supporters organised a fundraiser for the first responders who assisted in getting Dan safely to the hospital, two of whom were off-duty firemen who heard the crash. Dan played for two Ensham football teams, and the group decided to plan a football friendly to raise money for Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue and the Thames Valley Air Ambulance. Friend Ruby Williamson, who knew Dan since they attended Bartholomew's school together, said, After posting about this fundraiser, which wasn't intended to be anything huge, the local firemen were quick to comment and asked if they could come along and take part in the football match, and said they will also bring their fire engine. I made a Just Giving page for the event, and in less than one day we'd raised over £2,000. We had over 50 people wanting to take part in the football game, which became a tournament. Businesses offered drinks, snacks and pizzas. They included a Blissful Bites, run by Becky Treadwell, and the Edge Eatery, uh, run by Phoebe Hall and Tom Pickett, and Stuart Cottrell from the Jolly Sportsman provided a hog roast. A raffle was held later at Ensham Social Club, along with live music, while Ensham Parish Council donated the use of the football field and pavilion. Ruby said, Others raised money by holding a bake sale at a nursery and raised £315, and someone even auctioned off their dad on a date and raised £120. The event raised nearly £4,000, close to the £5,000 target. Dan's family and friends also requested the group add a charity named Campaign Against Living Miserably, C-A-L-M, to the appeal. It runs a free, confidential and anonymous helpline, as well as a web chat service, offering help, advice and information to anyone who is struggling or in a crisis. Ruby said... My relationship with Dan extends back to our time at Bartholomew School in Ensham, as do many of his friendships. Dan was such a vibrant character who always had the most infectious grin. He was loved by so many and will be missed dearly. It's astounding how many people will want to show to support in any way they can. My headline is Water Company Boss says its performance is unacceptable. Thames Waters Chief Executive has branded her company's performance unacceptable while taking questions from MPs. The Environmental Committee tackled bosses from five of the largest water and sewerage companies in England on the issue of river contamination. 
It followed the committee's inquiry into water quality in rivers, which heard reports of water companies discharging raw sewage into rivers in England more than 400,000 times last year. The Thames has millions of tonnes of raw sewage entering the river each year. Under questioning from Chairman Philip Dunn, Thames Chief Executive Sarah Bentley said, Thames Water's performance is unacceptable. Our customers find it unacceptable to contact us. Our ageing infrastructure, whether that's on the water side with leakage or on the sewage network, in terms of the capacity we are treating, needs addressing. Miss Bentley said, since I joined 12 months ago, I've been accelerating the money that we have got during this regulatory period. I went out, I listened to our customers, I listened to environmental groups and members of this house and of this committee, and it is clear that we have a broad range of performance metrics that we need to change. She said the firm was spending £1.2 billion over the next five years on improving its overall network to treat sewage and rain. She added, I can understand why people are genuinely upset and concerned about the quality of the rivers and the situation with sewage discharge into those rivers. A number of my colleagues have suggested making sure that we transparently share information about when those spills are occurring. The committee heard just 14% of English rivers were rated an ecological status of good. Our next item is headed Council Calling for Pause of ARC Plans. A council in Oxfordshire has decided to ask Michael Gove to pause the Oxford-Cambridge ARC project, calling it an arbitrary geographic construct. The Oxcam ARC is the area identified by the government as a key economic priority. It aims to boost the economic output of Oxfordshire, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire to £200 billion a year by 2050 in a strategy akin to the Northern Powerhouse. But a South Oxfordshire District Council meeting has called on the authorities' leader to write to Mr Gove, the new Minister for Levelling Up Housing and Communities, asking him to put the ARC project on hold. One councillor at the meeting, David Bartholomew, said it's the creation of an arbitrary geographic construct driving excessive growth in the southeast, with no real logic behind it other than it's an easy engine for growth. Many councillors say they're frustrated with the project and feel the government is not openly discussing the plans. Councillors called for the government to set out clearly what the aims are, including expected costs, projected housing and growth expectations and how it will fit into a wider regional structure within the UK. Councillor Tim Bearder said the quantum of growth was there at the beginning and it was a million houses because that was politically sensitive, they've taken that bit out and left everything else around it. The infrastructure is all the same, exactly as it was designed for a million houses, and yet they will not give us that figure now. I hope that Mr Gove, in his new position, will be honest with the people of South Oxfordshire on what the quantum of growth will actually be. There were also calls from the councillors for the government to give local authorities within the ARC the powers and funding needed to enable nature restoration, 
Councillors also called for proper democratic control so that local authorities can set their own housing requirements based on local need. The previous leader of the council, Sue Cooper, pushed environmental principles in the ARC project and conservation groups, such as RSPB, that were initially positive about the project. However, some environmental groups and councillors now feel the government is not taking environmental principles seriously. Councillor Andrea Powell said, pressing dogmatically ahead with the Oxcam ARC would fly in the face of recent government statements regarding levelling up and taking pressure off the overheated southeast and preserving and protecting nature. We are in a climate crisis. With COP22 around the corner, it's, it's, tone, it's tone deaf to be pursuing such a high-growth area that undermines local democracy and takes decision-making further away from those who are most likely to be impacted by unnecessary overdevelopment of hundreds of green spaces. The headline of this item is Day Room Approved at Camp After Home Fear. A permanent stone-built day room on a gypsy and traveller's site in Bampton has been approved, despite claims it will become a unit of self-contained accommodation. West Oxfordshire District Council's Lowlands Area Planning Subcommittee unanimously gave the green light for the building at the paddocks Weald Street, Bampton in line with officer recommendations that includes the caveat it will be used for no other purpose. Bampton Parish Council's submission, included in the pre-meeting report, read, We do not consider this to be a day room ancillary to a static and travelling caravan, and we consider that this is a unit of self-contained accommodation. Kelly Murray, Senior Planning Officer for West Oxfordshire District Council, said the proposals are, co- are compliant with policies for travelling communities and central government guidance, adding that guidance specifically says that it is essential amenity buildings are provided on each plot. The proposed building is going to occupy a fairly unobtrusive position at the back of the plot. It is not going to be immediately visible from the adjacent conservation area. She continued, citing that similar-sized and positioned buildings exist on the site's other plots. Officers consider that the proposed building would have health and hygiene benefits and would improve the residential amenity of the occupiers. She said in recommending approval. Councillor Ted Fenton, Conservative, Bampton and Clanfield, Chair of the Planning Committee said, the, paddock, the paddocks come to us fairly frequently and we have to be very careful to restrict what we consider at this meeting to this particular proposal. The Parish Council's objection, the supposition that it will not remain day accommodation, is not something we can consider. There is no self-contained accommodation proposed We are considering something that is ancillary to the caravans on this plot and I would urge members to stick to that point. The only concern raised by the committee came from Councillor Nick Leverton, Conservative Carterton South, who sought to clarify whether the permanent structure would set a precedent. He asked, "Are are we exposing ourselves for the future? 
No, I don't think so, said Kelly Murray. What is permitted is a caravan site. It is not the same as saying each caravan can be taken away and replaced by a house. We are looking at each application and each plot on an individual basis. I think if it got to the stage where so many buildings were being proposed that there would not be any room for caravans. I don't think that would be acceptable. Each proposal is judged in relation to its context. At the stage where people can't move or there are material planning impacts, then no, we would not be allowing further development. And now a couple of short health-related items. Firstly, pregnant in need of vaccine protection, Oxford Pioneer says. A creator of the Oxford Covid vaccine wants pregnant women to get a jab after studies show this group accounted for almost a fifth of the most critically ill patients in England. Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert, one of the Oxford AstraZeneca jab inventors, said it was important that expectant mothers were immunised because coronavirus could be especially dangerous during pregnancy. Dame Sarah said, We have so much evidence now that it's safe for them. It protects them, and COVID-19 is really dangerous in pregnancy. You don't want to put yourself and your baby through COVID-19. So have the vaccine. So much research has gone into these vaccines, years of research. Before we even knew about coronavirus, we were working on ways to make the vaccines. Billions of doses have now been delivered around the world, and there is so much evidence of their safety and their efficiency that it's really important that people continue to get vaccinated. NHS England found that between July the 1st and September the 30th, 17% of COVID patients receiving treatment through lung bypass machines were mothers-to-be who had not had their first vaccine dose. And the second item is about the vaccine as well and headed Booster Jabs campaign starts across the country. Booster jabs of the coronavirus vaccine are now being offered across Oxfordshire to give people longer-term protection. People over 50, health and social care workers and younger people at risk are being offered a booster jab. The vaccine protects people against the very infectious respiratory disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So far, more than 70% of the UK population have received their second vaccination and more than 85% have received their first dose. Protection can wane over time, so boosters are being offered to give longer-term protection. Health Secretary Sajid Javid urged people to get their flu jab and COVID-19 booster shot to give themselves and their loved ones the best possible protection in the months ahead. It comes as the NHS rolls out its biggest ever flu jab campaign amid fears that the viral infection... If left unchecked this winter, then thousands of lives could be lost. My headline is, Dad takes skydive after son cared for by Oxford Hospital. A father and his friends skydived to raise funds for Oxford Hospital's charity after his baby son needed treatment. Last, si- last summer, at just four weeks old, Andy Prescott's newborn son Rafe 
was rushed to the Horton General Hospital Emergency Department after becoming unwell with a temperature and difficulties feeding. Within seconds of their arrival to the emergency department, Rafe's condition deteriorated and he became unresponsive and floppy. He was put on oxygen while life-saving tests were carried out. The family from Brackley, near Bicester, was eventually told that Rafe was very poorly with sepsis and that further treatment was needed at the Oxford Children's Hospital. The family was transferred and began a lengthy stay while Rafe underwent life-saving treatment. Rafe's mother, Edlene, said, Once we had arrived at the Oxford Children's Hospital, Rafe was too exhausted and weak to feed properly, and so was being tube-fed, which was hard for me because not being able to feed him myself and feel that bond was tough. As the days went on and further tests were carried out, it was discovered that our baby had a kidney reflux and couldn't empty his own bladder, which meant more treatment was needed. Of course, we were all devastated, but we were at the beginning of what I can only describe as every parent's worst nightmare. At first, Rafe's weak condition and low blood platelet count meant that doctors were unable to carry out a lumbar puncture. Once he gained some strength, the diagnosis that everyone had been dreading was confirmed. Rafe had bacterial meningitis. Over the next 21 days, Rafe's condition gradually began to improve and the family was able to see their little boy getting stronger. After another short stay at the children's ward at the Horton General Hospital, Edlene, Andy and Rafe were allowed home, where the youngster has continued to go from strength to strength. To thank the medical teams, Andy and his friends took part in a 15,000-foot tandem skydive and raised £6,500. Mr Prescott said, We are so happy to have been able to give back to the hospitals. Although we were all a bag of nerves before the jump, we knew the importance of this skydive and it spurred us on. We'll be forever grateful to the teams at the Oxford Children's Hospital and Horton General, as their baby wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their quick thinking. Claire Hughes of Oxford Hospital's charity said, A big thank you to Andy, Mike, Edie, oh, Eddie and Adam for braving the 15,000-foot drop in support of our hospitals. The money raised will make a difference across the wards and departments that cared for little Rafe. And there is a lovely picture of Andy Prescott taking the plunge for the charity, for Oxford Hospital's charity, and he's smiling. <laughs> So thanks very much, Barbara, and that's the end of the first part of this edition. And appropriately enough, we move on to this week's reflection, which is about nursing and caring. Today, October the 21st, marks an anniversary that is of importance to all of us, but very few of us know about it. It was on the 21st of October, 1854, that Florence Nightingale and her party of 38 trained nurses left London and set out for the war in the Crimea a step that was to lead to the recognition of nursing and caring as true professions and opened a door that would eventually lead to the foundation of the NHS. Of course, there'd been nurses before Florence and her team, 
but they were basically untrained and given the job of looking after the youngest children in grand houses, hence the word nursery, and occasionally after the elderly for those that could afford them. Florence herself had shunned convention from her teenage years. She insisted that she had received a calling from God to help the sick and the poor. Instead of following in her mother's footsteps by marrying and having children young, she pursued a medical career. Florence felt her calling was specifically to nursing, and it turned out to be the one that would change the face of care forever. Despite the resistance of her parents, Florence eventually persuaded her father to let her train in Germany. This professional training, then unobtainable in England, soon paid off. Moved by newspaper accounts of soldiers suffering in the Crimean War, where the all-males medical staff, that is, doctors and surgeons, were overwhelmed by the numbers of injured and sick, Florence answered the British government appeal for nurses. She pulled together a small team and travelled out to the military hospital at Scutari, near Constantinople, now the city of Istanbul, a difficult journey by land and sea. The conditions at the hospital at Scutari were dire. The dirty and vermin-ridden hospital had been built near a cesspool and lacked even basic equipment and provisions. The medical staff were swamped by the large number of soldiers being shipped across the Black Sea from the war. More of these patients suffered from disease than from battle wounds. Despite these conditions, the male army doctors initially didn't want the help of Florence and her nurses. At first they saw her opinions as an attack on their professionalism and felt these gentlemen women, these gentlewomen would faint at the sight of blood or be unable to clean desperately sick men. But after nearly 5,000 casualties arrived from the Battle of Inkerman in November, the staff were fully stretched and accepted the nurse's aid. The no-nonsense, hard-negotiating Florence quickly set to work. She procured hundreds of scrub brushes and asked the least infirm patients to scrub the inside of the hospital from floor to ceiling. Florence herself spent every waking minute caring for the soldiers. In the evenings, as we all know, she moved through the dark alleyways, carrying a lamp while making her rounds, checking on patient after patient. The soldiers were both moved and comforted by the care and compassion shown by the lady with the lamp. Some simply called her the angel of the Crimea. Incredibly, her work reduced the hospital's death rate by two-thirds. The doctors themselves reported back that the nurses' services were extremely valuable. Her reforms of military hospital care, proven by her compelling use of statistics, she was the creator of what is now known as a pie chart, led to the establishment of a Royal Commission for the Health of the Army in 1857. On her return, weakened from illness she had contracted, she nevertheless transferred her reforms to caring for civilians. In 1860, she funded the establishment of St Thomas's Hospital using personal reward money granted to her by the British government. Within the hospital, she set up the Nightingale Training School for Nurses, the first ever professional training college for nurses in the UK. Florence had strong family links with Oxfordshire, and in 1891, Flora Masson, who trained at the school, was sent as the first trained matron at the Radcliffe Infirmary. The pair had a difficult start. Some doctors really appreciated professional nursing, but others treated the nurses as domestic servants. 
but eventually the pair's determination won through and paved the way for nursing as we know it here in Oxford just 130 years ago. All of us who have ever been in hospital or have needed care owe Florence Nightingale and her first team of 38 nurses a huge debt of gratitude. So, let's go over to our regular quiz and the answers from last week's quiz number 1885 on the 14th of October 2021. I'm sure our readers would like to have a go at answering these. So the first question from last week was, in uh, 1955, Rosa Parks was jailed because she would not give up to a white man her seat in the section of a bus allowed to blacks, except when the bus was full. Where did this incident occur? It's not Sharpville, is it? It's not, it's not Sharpville. It's actually um, Montgomery in Alabama. Oh, OK. Yep. Right. <laughs> and now one for football fans. In 1979, who was the first black man to play football for England? Hello. Laurie Cunningham. Oh. A portrait now in the National Portrait Gallery was found at a car boot sale in Burford. It's of a Jamaican woman who cared for soldiers in the Crimean War. What was her name? Mary Yeah. I don't know. It's Mary Seacole. Oh, was it? Yeah. Really? Yeah, they found it in the car boot cell. Good heavens. Yeah, yeah but the only yeah, photograph I was about to see, the only portrait of her, I think. Okay. And now, can anyone name any black women Nobel laureates? No. Uh, well, we've got four here. There's Toni Morrison, who won it in 1998 for literature. There's Wangari Marthy, who won it in 2004 for Peace, and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Lema Roberta Gboui, who won it in 2011, again for Peace in Liberia. And so on to this week's quiz, which, as you might expect, has got an NHS theme to it. First question. Florence Nightingale won fame for her services during the Crimean War but against which country were the British fighting? Number two. Florence Nightingale and her sister Parthenope were British, but where were they born? Number three. In which year was the NHS founded? Number four. To the nearest 100,000... How many nurses are there in the NHS? And finally, can you name, she's been in the news recently, the Chief Executive of NHS England? Okay. And now, before we go on to the second part of this edition, (coughs) excuse me, we're saddened to announce the following deaths, which were listed in the Whitney Gazette this week. On October the 9th, Catherine Waite. On October the 10th, Charlie Elloway. And finally, John, or Jack, Skirm. The date of Mr Skirm's death was not reported. Our condolences to their friends and to their families. And now we move on to the second part of this edition, with news about developments in Whitney High Street. And that's Nigel. And this item is headed, Marmite Issue of Pedestrian Centre Street. 
West Oxfordshire District Council had its largest response ever to a public survey on the Marmite issue of the pedestrianisation of High Street in Whitney. The Council's Cabinet met to discuss the next steps after a consultation found 64% of residents said the extra pedestrian space should be retained. Leader Michelle Mead said, This is one of the largest responses that we've had to any consultation. I dare say it's a bit of a Marmite subject, but many people, not just from Whitney, but from the whole of the district, have responded, and we have listened to the residents. It was a huge amount of people that felt more comfortable and it was more environmentally friendly if the high street remained closed. And we've had to listen to our residents first and foremost, and for that reason I will be seconding the proposal that the high street remains closed. When the first lockdown of 2020 was eased, the Council introduced measures to restrict the high street to buses, cycles, taxis and disabled badge holders only, to allow social distancing on the pavements. A public survey launched in June had a total of 1,346 responses, with 60% saying they felt safer with the restrictions and 26% responding to say that they did not. Andrew Coles, whose central ward covers half of the restriction area, said he'd been contacted by people with passionate arguments on both sides. I think what's important to remember is that the high street was struggling. We all know that that for many years now, he said. Shopping habits have changed, and I think we do have to focus differently. The high street is such an important part of this town and district, and I think it really does give us an opportunity to make the town centre much more attractive, much more pleasant, much more encouraging for people to come back and and much safer as well. Cabinet voted to keep the High Street closed until January 2022 and work with Oxfordshire County Council on another public consultation before a longer-term decision. Now for two more short items. Protecting local pubs. Plunkett Foundation, the charity dedicated to helping communities to safeguard rural pubs, is encouraging groups to join its study tours. Groups will visit three thriving community-owned pubs, including the White Hart in Wolvercote, the Red Lion in Northmore and the White House in Bladen to hear from residents who have purchased their pub. Thanks to the support of Blenheim Palace, groups will be able to attend the study tours and workshops for free. Claire Spendley, Plunkett Foundation's Head of Community Business, said... We want to inspire people to see how a community-owned pub can offer and become so much more than a pub. Blenheim shares our vision for supporting local groups to create businesses for the benefit of their community and has agreed to support these tours on October the 28th and 29th. And if you want more information, you visit plunket.co.uk for details. And the other item is Lessons in Spells on Fright Nights at Witch's House. Cox Manor Farm in Whitney will have a spooktacular transformation for October half term. Now in its third year, the Witch's House Halloween Treat 
We'll let families explore a magical mystery tour and have fun solving clues and challenges to graduate as a witch or wizard. The Manor House will come to life with technical wizardry, lighting and interactive sound effects with bubbling potions, bats, spiders and even a cauldron on the fire. Outside visitors can spot friendly ghosts hidden around the walled garden, enjoy the sight of the apple crops around the orchards and grounds. There are also resident chickens and ducks, goats, ponies and sheep. For grown-up muggles who want to try potion-making, there is a herbal remedy workshop over the Halloween weekend. Students will learn about herbs and plants and how they can be used to treat ailments. Discover wild food in garden or hedgerow and make herbal tinctures. The house is closed until October the 22nd as witches prepare for Halloween. The witch's house is open from October the 23rd to October the 31st. And there's a little picture showing the farm and some pumpkins in the grounds. Demolition of shop as storage firm plans new build. Work to demolish an eyesore that was formerly a country goods store in Whitney has been going on for a month and is nearly completed. The former countrywide store on Ducklington Lane is set to become a self-storage centre. Newport-based storage giant obtained permission to convert the former shop to a self-storage centre with first-floor office suites and external drive-up storage units in 2019. It's proposed to employ 37 full-time and one part-time member of staff. The store was part of an agricultural retailer that went out of business in 2018 and the property has sat empty for years. An eviction order was sought after travellers moved onto the land and closed the uh, store in January. Oxford County Council said the council's Gypsy and Traveller Service and its partner agencies were in contact with the landowner. The council spokesperson said the landowner also sought advice on how to further defend the location to prevent any further incursion. They added, It's a timely reminder to landowners and businesses and that properties are, that are currently unoccupied to ensure that their premises and car parks are secured against incursions. Simon Williams, Managing Director of Storage Giants, said materials are a real issue at the moment so there may be some delay until we can place the relevant orders but certainly we don't want to delay. School anniversary celebrations ramp up with a tea party. A school has unveiled a commemorative window to celebrate its 450th anniversary. Burford School held an alumni reunion with more than 100 former students. There was afternoon tea and piano playing by two boarders, while visitors looked at photograph displays to reminisce on times gone by. The commemorative window, designed by recent Year 13 student Caitlin Turner and executed by glass engraver Philip Lawson Johnson, was unveiled. Everyone received a commemorative bag while students learned facts about their old schoolhouses and gained an understanding of the original charter. The West Oxfordshire Boarding School was founded in 1571. 
the alumni reunion kicked off a range of events for the academic year. A Christmas celebration will take place at the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford on December the 15th, while the school will put on a production of Le Miserable with six performances in March and April. The culmination of the 450th anniversary will be a summer ball on July the 9th. Originally housed in what is now the school's boarding house, the school has grown to just over 1,400 students and there's a nice picture of four of the girls with their celebratory bags showing 450 years of Burford School. It's sunshine and smiles as runners get around Palace. More than a thousand runners took to the trails and paths of Blenheim Palace in glorious sunshine to complete the Blenheim 7K fun run. While the runners went through their paces around the Palace grounds, spectators basked in deck chairs supplied by the Oxford Business Park, sponsor of the run, and watched the rock choir perform. Nearly 200 children ran the one-mile junior race, including Marsh Given Primary School, who won the school team trophy for a third year. First boy was Nico Hartley in 5.53 minutes and first girl Diane Fisher in 6.35 minutes. This year the 7K began with runners and their dogs who set off just before the main pack. Race organiser Sarah Airy said so many people were asking to run with their dogs we thought that it would be good to have a separate wave for them. Next year we'll make it a new race for the event. The 7K race was won by Andrew Hennessy in 26 minutes 45 seconds and Matilda Crown was the first woman in at 31 minutes 16. The team award presented by Jodie McNamara, the community manager of Oxford Business Park, was won by North Lee under-14s football team who were fundraising for charity, the charity Seesaw. The effort was in memory of their coach who recently died of leukaemia in his 40s after a 20-year fight against the disease. The four-mile trophies were won by Woodstock runners Sophie Carter and partner Jonathan Creek in times of 31.13 and 26.53 respectively. Sophie was running to fundraise for the charity SNAP which supports sick and premature babies and their, part, uh, their parents at the John Ratcliffe Hospital. One of her twins spent time in the unit last summer, having been born with the umbilical cord around her neck. Nick Trimble, fundraising for the charity Same You, came from Greater Manchester to complete and win the wheelchair trophy. Nick was in an accident in 2014 while training for the Hackney Half Marathon and spent two years in hospital in London before returning to Stockport to spend more time in hospital there. He completed the course in 38 minutes, 24 seconds. Some were supporting World Mental Health Day on October the 10th, and last week's end's uh, event, fundraising for Oxfordshire Mind and Restore. Number 423 in the 7K, James Thrussell tweeted, For me, doing the Blenheim 7K for Oxford Restore is amazing and what a step, and thanks for everyone who's donated. Now my headline is Snap Happy Photography Fan Wins Dream Travel Job. A talented eight-year-old with an artistic eye and a love of nature has landed the job of a lifetime as a travel photographer. Ren Parks, eight, 
from Woodstock won a competition organised by a family travel firm to hire a budding snapper to document what it's like to holiday as a child. Wren's mum Caroline, who submitted her application, said, Born with a natural eye for nature, photography and a heart for wildlife, Wren was keen to demonstrate her love for nature by submitting three photographs of the outdoors. The first features a close-up of an opening within a slate wall revealing a luminous blue coastal landscape. The second, a beautifully intimate shot capturing a family of swans floating downstream and lastly, hitting the leaves of a plant as it floats in the wind revealing its deep red colouring. Family travel company Trip A Brood received hundreds of applications for the role of Chief Kids Officer, open to anyone aged 5 to 12 years old. Chief Executive and Founder Alexa Maria Rathbone Barker has given Wren the important job of documenting her family trips to the company's holiday destinations with photographs and content. The judging team included family influencer Emma Conway, known as on Instagram as Brummy Mummy of Two, who said she was blown away by the level of talent and creativity across all applications received. Asked how she felt about her role, Wren said, Good, amazing, absolutely thrilled. It's just what I really, I was really lucky to be the chief kids officer. There were loads of other people in the country who could have been it, but no, it was me. And I am so happy and grateful. I love just going out into the world and seeing all the beautiful things in a different way. I love travelling, seeing the fluffy white clouds and looking out of boats into the blue sea. When I'm on holiday, I love the beautiful sunshine in other countries, the different things that we can't see in England, like water monitors or peacocks. Miss Rathbone Barker said judging the competition had been rewarding. I'm in awe of all the talented junior photographers that applied and wish they could all be winners. I'm so pleased, however, to appoint Wren to the role. From the start, we loved the unique perspective and framing of her photographs and when I interviewed her, she really stood out as a confident, creative and adventurous photographer and I can't wait to see what pictures she comes back with from her holidays. And there's a lovely picture of her standing against a tree with her camera and smiling and also two of her photographs. And my last story is headed Blankets Exhibition Supports Volunteering Group. A volunteer group in Oxfordshire which makes and donates quilts to children's hospices and to women's refuges has had an exhibition to raise money for the work it does. Margaret Metcalf is the Oxfordshire coordinator for Project Linus and was approached by London's landmark department store Liberty to organise an exhibition. Liberty provided fabric from two ranges of its children's fabrics with 45 quilts made. The exhibition was held last month at the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney and was opened by the town's mayor, Joy Aitman, and designer from Liberty. Miss Metcalf said quilts were judged and awarded 
and it was a very successful exhibition, raising a lot of money for this very worthy cause. It will enable us to make even more quilts for those children who live in our community and are in need of a bit of extra care. Prizes were provided by Liberty, the Whitney Sewing and Knitting Centre, Village Fabrics in Wallingford, and Lady So and So in Henley, and Project Linus began in America in 1995 and since then has donated a total of 491,000 blankets with 22,000 donated so far this year. Local children's organisations that feel the need for quilts can get in touch with the Project Linus to request some of their creations. Now this article is quite important. It's, here's help to ensure you stay clear of scams. Last week was National Hate Crime Awareness Week, an opportunity we took to share how to make our communities safer by highlighting what hate crime is and how to report it if we see it in our communities. We've also been working closely with a wide range of organisations across the district to ensure West Oxfordshire remains a safe place to live by focusing on a number of issues, including domestic abuse, drug exploitation, rural crime, antisocial behaviour and fraud, to name a few. Earlier in the year, we reached out to town and parish councillors to get an idea of the issues facing residents. And one thing came up again and again, and that was scams. Phone scams, doorstep scams, email scams, investment scams, postal scams, pension scams. The list just goes on, and it seems that there are endless ways fraudsters are attempting to take our well-earned money. There is help available, and we work alongside some incredible organisations to support our residents when it comes to protecting against scams, including Citizens Advice, Thames Valley Police, Trading Standards and Age Concern, oh, Age UK. The Centre for Counter Fraud warns that over 65s are three times more likely to lose money to scammers than to be burgled. Both events are highly traumatic, but victims of fraud may be less likely to report the crime or seek support after the crime due to feeling embarrassment, stress or shame. We want West Oxfordshire's residents to know that if they report fraudulent activities, they will be listened to and there is help available to support them. Over the next six months, we aim to hold a number of community sessions to support residents to understand what scams look like and how to report them, as well as where you can receive support. You can find useful information in these places. Action Fraud, run by the National Fraud and Cybercrime Reporting Centre, and you call 0300-123-2040. You can also call 159, which is like dialing the police, non-emergency number on 101, but with connection to most UK banks' fraud teams.
If you are ever worried that someone might be pretending to be from your bank, hang up and call the 159 number and they can connect you directly with your bank to confirm whether it is a legitimate inquiry. Or the citizen's advice. This is a reporting centre for fraud and you could call them on 0800 144-8848 Now time for the notice board. There's just one event that may be of interest this weekend and advance notice of world-class concerts at Blenheim in 2022 which will need early booking. This weekend there's Halloween fun at Fairytale Farm at Southcombe near Chipping Norton. Pumpkin patches, pumpkin carving fairy tale actors, activity stables and much more. Tickets cost £6.98 with concessions for children and the over 60s and can be booked online at their website fairytalefarm, that's all one word, .co.uk. Next, there's a glittering lineup of acts at Blenheim Palace next summer. Simply Red, one of Britain's biggest bands of all time, will join Lionel Richie, Simple Minds, David Gray and UB40 at the Nocturne Live Festival in the Blenheim Palace Courtyard from Wednesday to Sunday, June the 15th to 19th. Tickets are likely to sell out fast and go on sale from 9am on Friday, that's tomorrow, and start at £36. Our last news item tonight was an important one, as Barbara said, about scams. One is regarding building Don't fall victim to road builders offering energy efficiency deals that seem too good to be true. Listen to the file that we're attaching to the end of this edition. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus, email, internet, podcast and Alexa. Full details can be seen on our website at wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link, listen online. And if on any week you have not received your stick for whatever reason, or there's a problem with producing the sticks, you can always listen on the telephone by dialing 01993 555986. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do so as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches, and then we can't continue our service to you. And remember, if you want to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we'll telephone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Mail for the stories that we've used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Eric Imerson, and copier Ian Rose, who's copying the memory sticks and working the magic on the technology, and to our volunteers, Shirley Rawlings, Lynn Harding and Mike Herbert, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks. You have returned, and keeping records of all this in our register. And finally... Big thanks to our readers tonight, Nigel James and Barbara Baringer. Keep listening at the end of the programme for an infosound item, 
which gives some of the highlights of this week's best radio listening and will also give you information, as I mentioned earlier, about avoiding scams. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition... Goodbye. Goodbye. DNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. I'm Darren Ward, and I'm a Trading Standards Officer who works for Hertfordshire County Council Trading Standards. Now, Trading Standards is a local government service that works to protect consumers and support legitimate business. We have a statutory obligation to enforce fair trading, combat illegal trading, monitor product safety, address underage sales, and verify weights and measures. The Citizens Advice Consumer Service handle inquiries on our behalf and will help with any complaint about goods and services. If it sounds like there's been a breach of the criminal law that we enforce, they'll pass your complaint on to us for further investigation. Protecting people against scams is more important than ever. Many people are facing issues as a result of the pandemic, meaning more people are in vulnerable situations. Scammers are taking advantage of this, so it's vital people have the knowledge and the tools they need to protect themselves. Scams are crimes that can happen to anyone and that we can all take a stand to help stop. There are actions we can all take to report them. We can share stories and raise awareness of scams to safeguard ourselves and others. For each subject, we'll explain what the scam or fraud is, how it works, how to protect yourself, where to go for advice and how to report the matter. We at Trading Standards deal with many scams, including products and services that claim to improve the energy efficiency of your property. In an age where this is becoming really important to people who are concerned with their day-to-day impact on the environment, becoming a victim of a scam where what's promised turns out to be a lie can end up not only being very costly, but can also leave you with a lot of home improvements that turn out to be worthless. Environmentally friendly products such as solar panels, cavity wall insulation, loft insulation and double glazing can be a legitimate way to reduce your impact on the environment and, in the long term, can even save you money. However, how can you as a consumer tell the difference between a service being provided by a genuine trader as opposed to one being provided by rogues? There's a few questions you need to ask yourself. Were you contacted out the blue by the company? This is always the biggest red flag. Does the deal sound too good to be true? Are you being promised a grant to pay for the work? Are you under pressure to respond quickly? Is there a surveyor who just happens to be in your area? Is this a one-day-only offer promising a big percentage reduction on the usual price? Are you being told about changes in environmental law that mean you must make changes to your existing product? So, fire switches for solar panels, or that fiberglass insulation is now illegal. Are the price details vague? Is the company unwilling or unable to give you a general price up front before they visit? Is the trader out of area? If so, how easy do you think it'll be to get them back if there's a problem? Can you spot any spelling or grammatical mistakes in the leaflet, email or text? Or are you being asked to keep it quiet and not discuss the matter with friends and family? If you've answered yes to any of these, there's a really good chance it's a scam. You need to steer clear and do not allow them to visit. We've seen a recent rise in complaints from homeowners who already have solar panels. 
Reports have been of a phone call out of the blue telling the resident that the company that has installed their panels has gone bust, that they, the caller, have taken over the warranty work. However, this usually means that they have bought the customer list and will be contacting everyone on it to try and sell them something that they don't need. Bogus companies have told residents things like, your inverter needs changing, when they've got absolutely no evidence that it does. Or, we've been monitoring your panels. There's no way they can do any such thing. Or that your fire switch replacement is required due to a change in the law. Again, this is untrue. As a result, homeowners have paid for unnecessary and expensive work. Don't be panicked into agreeing to get any work done as a result of a cold call from someone you don't know. Instead, get a second opinion from a trustworthy trader. Then shop around for the best deal for you. If you do sign up, remember you've got a right to 14-day cooling-off period for any contracts agreed at your home. Be aware, though, that this cooling-off period doesn't apply to bespoke goods such as double glazing, so check exactly what, if any, cooling-off period is being offered in those circumstances. This next part is really important. Don't be persuaded to allow the work to start early by signing the paperwork. Always read what you're being asked to sign and don't sign if you're not happy. The cooling off period is a time for you to do your research or speak to family and friends and you can cancel without penalty if needs be. If you have signed, you can still cancel until the service is concluded but you will have to pay reasonable costs up to the point of the cancellation. We know this sounds complicated but it need not be so long as you do your research up front. You find a good trader and you're not rushed into making a bad decision. So, before you agree to a visit from a solar panel company, consider the following. What do you actually need solar panels to do? Is it just to provide the electricity you need or to sell any excess off to the national grid? Get several quotes from different companies. Compare the prices and what's included and make sure you get a written breakdown of how any claimed energy savings can add up. If the price seems lower than any other quotes, check whether all the services are included. But beware for one-off or on-the-spot discounts, which are examples of pressure selling. Decide what your budget is and stick to it. Remember that this is a long-term investment, and you'll probably not recoup any savings for at least 15 years, maybe more. If finance is offered, shop around for it. You don't have to take the deal that's offered you by the solar panel company. Be clear about the costings and get the best deal for you. If you use a credit card to pay for part of the price, even if it's just a deposit, you'll have extra protection from your bank in case things go wrong. Look at the length of the warranty being offered. You should expect 25 to 30 years for the solar panels and 5 to 10 years for the inverter, because the inverter is the most likely part to break down. Look at whether they're a member of a trustworthy trade association. The Home Insulation and Energy Systems Quality Assurance Contractors Scheme is the big one. If you're interested in installing any of these energy efficient products, ask your family and friends if they have any personal recommendations or use a trusted trader scheme. Please remember though, not all trusted trader schemes carry out the same level of checks and reviews may not always tell the full story. Take care to double check the scheme you want to use and if there is one, Use your local trading standards approved trader scheme. 
For advice or to ask for support from Trading Standards, call the Citizens Advice Consumer Helpline on 0808 223 1133. Thank you for listening. TNF Soundings. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, October 23rd. At 4pm, Radio 4 Extra has a dramatisation of Dorothy L. Sayers' 1923 mystery, Whose Body?, in which Lord Peter Whimsey investigates the mystery of a corpse in a bathtub. There are a number of programmes this week as we approach the latest round of talks about the climate change, COP26. At 5.30 on Radio 4, in the series The Bottom Line, Carbon Capture asks if we really can survive without carbon. On Radio 3 at 6.30, this week's opera is Janacek's Janufa, recorded at the Royal Opera House earlier this month. Radio 4 at 7.15, when in the series This Cultural Life, Sir Paul McCartney talks about his key influences and inspiration in a wide-ranging conversation with John Wilson. At 8pm, also on 4, by Plastic the Biography, the story of how plastic became such a major player in the worlds of industry, medicine and design, before becoming persona non grata, thanks to its involvement in our current ecological plight. And staying with Radio 4 at 10.15, The Reunion, Kirsty Walk assembles people from both sides of the 1990s debate over genetically modified food. Sunday, October 24th, at 7.20 in the morning on Radio 4 Extra, you can hear all five parts of the dramatisation of Isabel Colgate's The Shooting Party, a tragic comic story set in a country house party in 1913. On Radio 3 at 12 noon, in Private Passions, Michael Barclay is joined by former Conservative MP Rory Stewart, who discusses his relief at leaving politics, his years in Afghanistan, and why he's moving his young family to Jordan. Castaway on Desert Island Discs, before that on Radio 4 at 11am, is American political philosopher Michael Sandel. And at 11.45 on 4, the latest part of Just One Thing with Michael Mosley, in which he recommends us to drink water. 6.45 in the evening on Radio 3, Capturing the Light is a collaboration between British printmaker Norman Aykroyd and poet Nancy Campbell, exploring what it takes to capture light on the page in poetry or in print. And on Classic FM at 9pm, rounding off the weekend, Moira Stewart meets her guest, actor Hayley Mills. Onto the programmes then that are broadcast at the same time every day, Monday to Friday. Same radio station, same time, every day of the week. 9.45 on Radio 4 and repeated at half past midnight, Book of the Week, Slime and Natural History charting the three-billion-year history of slime, from the part it played in the evolution of Earth to its potential role in climate change and life beyond our planet. Composer of the Week, this week on Radio 3 at 12 noon, is George Walker. On Radio 4, just after midday every day, and repeated as Book at Bedtime at 10.45, the first of ten episodes of The Frequency of Us, Keith Stewart's novel about Will, who for the last 65 years has believed his wife Elsa vanished without trace on the night of an air raid in Bath. No one has heard of Elsa, 
and there's no record of Will being married. Radio 4, each day at 1.45, apart from Wednesday this week, 69 Ways to Save the Planet continues to explore solutions to the world's ecological problems. Wednesday's episode will be broadcast at 9.30 in the morning to make way for the budget. On Radio 4 Extra at 2pm each day, Julian Rintat reads a biography of 18th century artist Thomas Gainsborough. And Radio 4 Extra at 3 is a dramatisation of Salman Rushdie's Booker Prize winning novel Midnight's Children. Also on Radio 3, to round off the day at 10.45 each day, the essay The Lost Hours, in a series of programmes looking at the phenomenon of the lost hours of the day, considering in light-hearted fashion how the day used to be punctuated by social rituals that lent a character to certain hours, starting on Monday with Elevenses. On to the programmes then. For the rest of the week, starting with Monday, October 25th, the drama on Radio 4 at 2.15 is Prestige, a thriller exploring the weapons trade through the story of two old friends who used to be frontline foreign correspondents in Iraq and the disturbing secret they share. On Radio 4 Extra at 2.30, Britain's blonde bombshell, the Diana Dawes story, is presented by Honor Blackman. Climate change is again the subject of a new series starting at 8 on Radio 4, A Summer of Fire and Flood. The worst effects of climate change are often framed as a problem for the future, but for some the worst has already happened. And the theme continues at nine on Radio 4 in Glasgow, our last best hope, in which former Labour MP Douglas Alexander looks at the prospects for the success of COP26 as it comes to his town, his hometown of Glasgow. Tuesday, October 26th, 9am, Radio 4, the life scientific in which we hear from zoologist Tim Clutton-Brock about his life and career, including his long-term studies of red deer on rum, Soe sheep on St Kilda and meerkats in the Kalahara. Radio 4 at 11.30, Pride or Prejudice, How We Read Now. Abigail Williams, Professor of English at Oxford, explores the power of the novel. St Kilda features again in Costing the Earth on Radio 4 at 3.30, when in a year on St Kilda, conservationist Connor McKinney reports from one of the UK's most remote and isolated islands, which was abandoned by humans in 1930 and where he's been living for the past six months to ensure new building work there does not disrupt the fragile ecosystem. As it's Tuesday, as usual, Peter White presents In Touch at 8.40 on Radio 4, the latest news and information for the blind and partially sighted. Wednesday, October 27th, 9am, Radio 4. This week's programme in the series Life Changing has the intriguing title I'm Held Together by 17 Titanium Plates. Pip Peacock set herself a challenge this year of completing a thousand miles on foot to raise money for the air ambulance, who'd come to her rescue when she was seriously injured in a country walk with her dog Buster in 2019. She finished her last mile this October. Radio 4 at 11.30, the final programme in the series, What's Funny About? looks at The Good Life, with contributions from Felicity Kendall. Budget Day, as I mentioned earlier... 18 minutes past 12 on Radio 4, you can hear news, analysis and comment on the Chancellor Rishi Sunak's autumn budget statement. Coral Evensong at 4pm on Radio 3 may come as some light relief this week from Armagh Cathedral. And Radio 4 at 8.30, Descendants looks at two more people, Marlon and Valerie, whose lives are connected through slavery. Thursday, October 28th, from our own correspondent, 11am on Radio 4. Kate Aidy presents reports from BBC correspondents right across the world. 
also on four at three, in the series Open Country, Until the Land Runs Out, tells the story of William Henry Quinn, who returned from war and walked from Cornwall to Scotland. He also went to Wales, the Cotswolds and the Yorkshire Dales as he tried to regather himself. But the truth of his journey is not quite all it seems. Radio 4 Extra at 4.30, there's the first in a series of two, Actors Life for Me, Radio 2 sitcom starring John Gordon Sinclair as an aspiring actor and Caroline Quinton. Also on Radio 4 Extra at 6.30, Great Lives, Stephen Fry celebrates the legacy of his hero, P.G. Woodhouse. Finally for Thursday, Radio 2, 9pm, The Country Show with Bob Harris and it celebrates its 5,000th show. Friday, October 29th at 12.30 lunchtime, Radio 4 Extra begins Series 3 of Second Thoughts from 1991, in which James Bolam and Linda Bellingham star as two divorcees beginning Married Life. Forethought at 7pm on Radio 4 has the title Sociably Mobile. Head teacher Michael Merrick challenges how we think about social mobility, arguing that it often involves pressure on individuals to move away from the family and community that nourish them. At the same time on Radio 2, 7pm, maybe enjoy some musical nostalgia and some bad jokes with pop and soul oldies in Tony Blackburn's Golden Hour. The Beach Boys and the Four Seasons are some of the highlights. And to end the week with some political debate, maybe. Any questions, 8pm, Radio 4, comes this week from Chatteris Parish Church in Cambridgeshire. As always, may I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNS Soundings. DNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello. Here's John's selection of audio-described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 23rd and ending Friday the 29th of October 2021. Starting on Saturday with Wonders of the Moon on BBC Two at 8.45am, the programme asks why there have been so many supermoons of late. Continuing on BBC Two at 9.45am, Hugh's Wild West continues as Hugh visits the Forest of Dean. At 11.30am on BBC One, Nadia's family favourites, the Bake Off winner shows us how to make an orange and coffee poke cake. At 11.40 on ITV, Ainsley's Good Mood Food Today, the chef makes healthy breakfast muffins. James Martin's American Adventure continues at 12.40pm on ITV, with James visiting the Hamptons in New York. Bargain Hunt is back with audio description at 1.15pm on BBC One. Today, the hunters are in Berkshire. The feature film this afternoon on BBC Two at 2pm is Yentl, starring Barbara Streisand. Yentl is a young woman who disguises herself as a boy to become a Talmudic scholar. Moving to the evening at 7.30 on ITV is The Cube. Luke and Jack test their teamwork skills in the big transparent box, followed by Amber and John, all hopeful of winning up to £250,000. Casualties on BBC One at 9.30pm. Tonight, this episode follows a day in the lives of the paramedics, Sa, Ian, Jan and Teddy, 
as they contend with the reality of what it means to be on the front line. Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason is the late-night film on ITV at 10.45. Bridget discovers her seemingly perfect barrister boyfriend Mark possesses some unattractive qualities, and soon she finds herself drawn to the dastardly Daniel. Now on to Sunday, 24th October. Devon and Cornwall with Julia Bradbury starts the day at 9.30am on ITV, with Julia walking the south-west coast path. Bargain Hunt is on BBC One at 12.30, looking for bargains in London. The afternoon film on BBC One is Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. The pair offer a humane pest control service, but the business is jeopardised when a monster begins destroying local gardens. The third part of The Mating Game is on BBC One at 8pm. In tonight's episode, Freshwater, timing is everything. The start of the rains in South Africa triggers a violent battle between male African bullfrogs. And hooded grebes perform comical dances to attract a mate. Also at 8 on ITV, The Larkins continues with In Which Pop and Ma Go on Holiday. Ma thinks Pop is working too hard, so books a weekend in Margate, leaving Marietta and Charlie to look after the children. But will everything turn out perfect? In the final part of Ridley Road on BBC One at nine, Vivian risks everything to make a last attempt to sabotage the fascists without being caught. Also at nine, but on ITV, Angela Black continues... Angela and Ed prepare to carry out their plan. She spends the day readying herself for the big night, but will she go through with it? Finally at nine on ITV3 is the fourth part of The Savoy. In The Grill, restaurant director Thierry is bracing himself for another visit from Gordon Ramsay. Vera on ITV3 at 10pm could end your day with a mystery. In Protected, Vera unearths a 30-year-old mystery when the son of a prominent local family is found murdered. Then a second death puts the detective under more pressure. Monday, 25th October, starts with Homes Under the Hammer on BBC One at 11.15am. Today, they are developing properties in Durham, Cumbria and Worcestershire, This programme is on each weekday at this time. Bargain Hunt, which is on BBC One at 12.15pm, is in Delting in Kent. This programme is on at 12.15 each weekday. Doctors on BBC One at 1.45pm. Bear intervenes with some cringe-inducing management techniques. This programme is on at this time every day until Thursday. You could escape to the country at 3pm on BBC One. The country in question is the county of Hampshire. How about getting back to the land with Kate Humble on BBC Two at 4.15pm? Kate visits Will and Gillian, who are producing the first salt in the spa town of Droitwich in more than 100 years. At 6 on ITV3, Heartbeat continues with two more episodes. In the first, 
Lord Ashfordley regrets employing Vernon at the hall. Then at seven, Vernon Scripps organises a beauty pageant. Heartbeat is on this channel at this time all week. At 8pm on ITV is Save Money, My Beautiful Green Home. Ranveer Singh and Cooney Barker travel to Staffordshire to meet Kira and Ewan, who are planning to give their bathroom a green makeover. Part 4 of Blair Brown, The New Labour Revolution, is on BBC Two at 9. Following the terror attacks of 11 September 2001, Tony Blair fulfills his promise to stand by the United States while trying to persuade President Bush to seek the backing of the UN on the Iraq conflict. Also at nine, but on ITV, is a new series, The Long Call, a crime drama from author Anne Cleves and shown on the next four nights at this time. A body is found on a North Devon beach and D.I. Matthew Venn must solve the case with no witnesses and no motive. There's another new series, also at nine, but on BBC One, The Outlaws. In this comedy, starring Christopher Walkden and Stephen Merchant, seven disparate people start their community payback sentences, renovating a derelict building in Bristol. The laughs come from personality clashes, which are energetically written and perfectly cast. The rerun of Scott and Bailey concludes on ITV3 at 10pm. The team investigate the gang shooting of a teenage boy, which isn't all it seems. Now on to Tuesday, 26th October. At 7.30pm on ITV, Heathrow, Britain's busiest airport. In this, the last of the present series... Joel has his hands full at the airport's in-house COVID-19 testing centre. Holby City is on BBC One at 7.50. Lucky is struggling, but will Kylie's efforts to help end up doing more harm than good? Alan Titchmarsh is in Salford for Love Your Garden on ITV at 8pm. His green-fingered team create an eco-inspired kitchen garden for a community hero. I would suggest The Great British Bake Off on Channel 4 at 8pm and Murder Island on Channel 4 at 9, but I've just heard on the news that audio description and subtitles on Channel 4 are unlikely to be available until mid-November due to the fire in the transmission area in September. Who Do You Think You Are on BBC One at 9pm features the TV presenter and former footballer Alex Scott. Unaware of her Jewish ancestry on her mother's side, she discovers that her great-grandfather took part in the Battle of Cable Street. Don't forget part two of The Long Call, ITV at 9. At 9.15pm on BBC Two, Impeachment, American Crime Story. In The President Kissed Me, Monica is banished to the Pentagon but believes the President will bring her back to the White House if he wins a second term in office. Scott and Bailey start Series 2 on ITV3 at 10pm. The duo investigate a burnt body found in Woodland. And now on to Wednesday 27th of October, starting with The Repair Shop 
on BBC One at 8pm. The team repair a 1960s barber's chair, a tar, a long-stringed instrument from Iran, and a broken German roulette wheel. Also a date, but on BBC Four, Earth, Power of the Planet. In Part One, Volcano, Dr Ian Stewart reveals how the planet's inner heat raised up mountains and created new land. There's a repeat of Endeavour on ITV3 at 8pm. Entitled Colours, Morse investigates a murder at an army base and it's only a matter of time before secrets within the regiment are exposed. At 9pm on BBC One, Shetland continues. Perez and Tosh board a dive boat to investigate a gruesome death. Was this an accident or was the only witness to a murder silenced before they could speak? There's a new series with Professor Brian Cox on BBC Two at nine. In Universe, the professor begins his exploration of the cosmos with a hymn to the great luminous bodies that bring light and warmth to the universe. Thursday 28th starts with Shop Well for the Planet. It's on BBC One at 8pm and in this, the final part, Jordan Banjo shows Saska and Steve how to rustle up a katsu-style cauliflower to help them become greener while bringing up two young daughters. On BBC Two, also at 8, the hairy bikers go north. Sai and Dave travel to Northumberland. In the seaside town of Amble, they eat seafood fresh from the North Sea, then discover which of the nine varieties of potato grown on a Cheviot Hill farm is best for making chips. On Linda's farm, they marvel at the oyster beds before making fillet steak stuffed with oysters. At nine, guilt continues on BBC Two. Jackie, Max's police handler, exerts more pressure on him and Kenny makes a shocking discovery. The long call concludes on ITV at nine. The killer is in Matthew's sights, but someone else is in danger. Then at five past ten on the drama channel, new tricks. In Father's Pride, the team investigate a 20-year-old case when a camera and film belonging to a lab assistant murdered in 1987 is found in a Soho pub. And finally, to Friday, 29th October. Kate Humble is back to the land on BBC Two at 4pm. Today, she is visiting an ex-marketing manager and her business partner, who aim to produce the best woolen yarn in the UK. Father Brown is on the drama channel at 8 and murder proves to be no laughing matter when Father Brown visits a jester's convention. Doc Martin is on ITV3 at 8, with two episodes. First is Blood is Thicker. Martin visits a family with a passion for taxidermy, laid low by stomach trouble. And then at 9, in Aromatherapy, the Doc finds cause for concern in Caroline Bosman's unpredictable behaviour. Vienna Blood is a new series on BBC Two at nine. In part one, The Last Seance, a young English doctor is studying under Sigmund Freud and meets Oscar Reinhardt, 
a detective struggling with a strange case of murder. Max offers his assistance, hoping his skills of perception, forensics, and his deep understanding of human behaviour will be of use. The late-night film at 5 past 11 on ITV is the spoof Bond film Casino Royale, starring David Niven as the spy. When M is killed, Bond is called back into active service to halt the threat of Smirsh, and Smirsh is spelt S-M-E-R-S-H. And John writes that he hopes you find something of interest in his selection this week. TNF Soundings 